You are listening to Episode 9 of Full Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 16, Petrus Orbital, 2352, June 18. Wendy kicked me out of the room at 0745. With you around, I'm impossible, she said. I'm not going to stop grinning for a week, she told me, wearing only that grin and a sheen of sweat as she kissed me goodbye at the door. Git, she said, and slammed the door in my face. I could hear her giggling. Chuckling, I headed for the ship. I had time for a quick shower and a fresh ship suit before I met with the captain to find out what was happening. Fong was on watch when I went through the lock. He blinked when I came in. You must have had quite a party if you're just coming in now, he said with a smirk. Yes, thanks, I did, I told him with a smile. Now to find out what the captain has in mind. Good luck, Ishmael, he said seriously. I think everybody in the ship is rooting for you. Thanks, Fong, I said. I have every expectation that I'll be around for a while longer. I just don't know in what capacity. I waved as I headed into the ship and hoped it wasn't for the last time I'd be coming aboard. It didn't take long to get showered and cleaned up. Sally Green was in her bunk and saw me come in. Woo, look at you, she teased. Just dragging your Tom Caddy butt back in? Dragging is the operative word there, I think, I told her with a grin. I got cleaned up and into a ship suit just in time. My tablet bipped at 0845 with my summons to the cabin. Good luck, Ish, Sally said seriously. I winked and left. The captain had all the usual participants with her at the table, along with Mr. Von Nichols, who sat just to the left of Mr. Maxwell down the table from the captain. Thank you, Mr. Huang, the captain said. I know this has been a difficult time, but in spite of that, you've performed your duties with your customary flair and grace. Thank you, Captain, I said in the pause. We've been waiting for a message from Home Office that authorizes us to create a new slot. In light of the critical failures which we encountered coming into Betrist, the senior officers submitted a petition to Home Office to create an assistant position in systems and communications to aid Mr. Von Nichols in his duties. That authorization arrived at 0830 this morning. In light of your particular contributions to the resolution of our systems failures, we're prepared to offer you that slot. The position is a Spec 2 system slot reporting to Mr. Von Nichols. It pays scale for Spec 2 and carries the customary full share in mass allotment. What say you, Mr. Huang? she asked with a grin. I say yes, Captain. I'd consider it an honor. Mr. Von Nichols, she said. Yes, Captain? Find us that flaw before somebody loses a ship. Aye, aye, Captain. Mr. Von Nichols ushered me out of the cabin and we headed for the bridge. Rather anticlimactic, wasn't it? he asked quietly. <laughs> Not from where I was standing, sir. He grinned at me. Were you worried, Ish? he asked. I knew you were working hard on something, and I knew if anybody could pull it off, you would, I said. But, yeah, I was also worried that it just might not have been possible at all. There had to be some doubt as to whether or not it would fly, because we've been waiting for it all this time. Good analysis, he said. Just between you and me, I was sweating bullets. It's behind us now, and I'm very pleased to be working with you, sir. Sucking up already, Mr. Huang? I believe in getting off to a good start, sir, I told him with a grin. Oh, we are going to have such fun, aren't we? He chortled. I believe so, sir, I said. What do we do first? Well, we need to get you set up on the bridge and find you a duty station. There's a spare systems console there, and you'll be with me there during navigational evolutions. Pull out, docking, transition, he said. That'll be your duty station, but there's not a lot to do if everything goes well. If it goes bad, then it'll get furry real fast. Oh, I understand that, sir. We stepped onto the bridge with a lot less formality than I had in the past. Remembering that, I asked quietly, do I need to ask permission or anything when I come up here by myself? He shook his head. You're part of the bridge crew now. You're required to be here, he said quietly. We crossed to a row of stations not unlike my old post down in Environmental. 
When you need to be here to work, just come up and work. But if there's something going on, stay out of the way. If it's really interesting, pay close attention. But still, if there's something happening, watch the ship's network and see how it works, he said just as quietly. You've got a little grace period here, Ish. Everybody's going to be adjusting to the fact that you're here and not expecting too much from you yet. Yet? Adding a new slot has an effect on the finances of the ship, he said lightly. You're an expensive insurance policy, and we need to get you contributing an added value where the company will take the slot away once we solve the EMP problem. That put a different complexion on the situation. I understand, Sar, and thanks for telling me, I said. We'd best get at this, then, eh? He grinned. I wouldn't sweat it, Ish, he said. Compared to what we've pulled off already, the rest is going to go just fine. He laughed softly and started running me through the console diagnostics. Being on the bridge reminded me a bit of the library, the University of Nerys. When I was too small to leave at home, Mom would take me with her when she did her research. I remembered the quiet purposefulness of the big halls. There were low conversations all around and occasionally heated arguments in some of the graduate study rooms, but generally there was a kind of low hum of background activity. Everybody had something to do there, and for the most part, they were getting on with it. Lighting on the bridge was subdued, and the information displays around the bridge were the main source of shipboard illumination. Consoles had red glow patches so you didn't bump into them in the dimness, and the screens all showed data on a black background to keep the ambient light levels down. It was all rather moot while docked because the orbital only a few meters outside the forward port glowed like some monstrous full moon peeking in the window, so bright it was casting shadows on the otherwise dim bridge. We finished running diagnostics and brought the console up. Normally you won't need to run the diagnostics, he said. We just haven't used this console for a while, so it's just as well. Does it look familiar? Yeah, I said. Same basic station as environmental. Correct. The hardware is standard throughout the ship. All the consoles and all the divisions are the same. It's cheaper that way, he grinned. The only difference is the software behind it. Down in environmental, you don't need all the reactor controls, and down in power, they don't need the scrubbers. About 90% of the code base is shared in common, though, and while that cuts down on code error, it also means that if the code that turns on the lights and berthing is wrong, then the code that turns on the sail generators is wrong. Isn't that a little risky? I asked. He grinned, like getting into this tin can and sailing out into hard vacuum isn't already. Well, put it that way, I said with a chuckle. We won't be playing with that stuff. It's in, it's tested, it's good. What we have to deal with, and 99.99% of the time, it's as boring as environmental, is keeping the systems alive and kicking. Data archive, systems backup, optimizing data, the occasional hardware replacement. Until we came into Betris and blew out the data cabinet, the most serious problem I had to deal with in the two years I'd been aboard was a burned-out comms repeater down in the spine that kept sending all the engine control commands back to the bridge with the data equivalent of occupant unknown. Understood, sir, I said. Privately, I wondered if the magic show wasn't over, but merely slipping into a more subtle second act. If the ship was generally as reliable as he was saying, it made no sense for me to be sitting on the bridge. Mr. Von Nichols slipped into the seat at the next console, obviously his normal post, and began bringing up displays of his own. He turned to me. I'll slave your console to mine for now. You'll be able to watch when we get underway, and when we get secured, we can begin looking at putting together all those lovely pieces of equipment down in the office. Yes, sir, I said. He ran through a quick systems tour on the console and showed me that the bridge consoles could be configured to act like any other console on the ship. The elegance of it felt right to me somehow. He brought up a schematic of the ship that was the same one I'd been using for VSI all those weeks and overlaid the fiber data runs, wireless access points, data storage closets, and consoles. That was pretty impressive. It included my VSI environmental sensor packages along with every other sensor, feedback, and control package in the ship, from locks to cargo container latches to engine mount gimbal positions. That's just a static picture, he said. He hit a function key on his console and they all started to blink. 
That's the data flow view, he said with a grin. The speed of the blink represents the amount of the data flowing. Some just spit out a packet every once in a while. Others are constantly being updated and sending data back. It was like looking at a viewer showing me all the little nerve cells in the ship were firing in real time. He shut it off and we went back to the static picture. No need to leave that running if we're not going to be here, he said. Let's get some lunch before the show begins. I looked at the chrono. Twelve hundred. The morning had sublimated. It hit me then in a way that it hadn't yet. Pull-out was in ninety ticks, and I'd be going. I had a new job. I had a new boss. Lois wasn't done with me yet. As we headed down to the mess deck, Mr. Von Eichel said, Consider yourself on third section and grafted to my hip. We haven't had a chance to figure out what to do with the watches in port yet, but underway you'll be on third section rotation for the time being. We may shift you to second eventually to provide system support coverage to a wider span on the clock. It's all new to us, Ish, so have patience with the jerking around you're probably going to experience. Sar, I'm just glad to still be here to be jerked around, believe me. Your first task underway is going to be putting together the uh-oh box and getting the ship net to run on it. I hope we never have to use it, but if we do, I want it up immediately. We'll need to figure out some protocol for it, so be thinking about where to store it, how to bring it up quickly, anything you can think of that restores some minimum level of control in the event of another data cabinet crash. Makes sense. Then what, sir? Then we find out how an EMP got through the shielding and burned out that data cabinet, and we figure out how to stop it from ever happening again. When we stepped onto the mess deck, I was shocked by the number of smiles focused in my direction. Things had been moving so fast all morning I'd not had a chance to tell anybody. Brill, Bev, and Diane were all sitting at the same table along with Francis and Cece. I grabbed some grub and settled with them. Francis grinned at me and said, We just cannot get rid of you, can we? Well, not yet anyway, I grinned back. Brill was smiling and Diane had a big grin. Beverly looked almost teary and I wondered if she felt okay. Last I'd seen her, she'd been crawling back aboard snarling. I made a note to get her aside and find out what was going on with her. Cece asked, So how'd you manage this? It came out a bit colder than I think he meant it. I could see Diane start to tense up, so I jumped in. Well, after the accident coming in, the officers reevaluated their system support needs, and they convinced Home Office to add a new slot. At least long enough to figure out what happened and how to deal with it. I shrugged. I got first dibs. Nice, Brill said. What'll you be doing? Well, first task is to recreate the emergency network controller. They don't want to rely on my portable. Well, that's a good plan, Francis contributed. Then what? Then we try to find out how the EMP did all that damage to begin with. How are you going to do that? Brill asked. I have no idea, but I can't imagine it's the first CME that this ship has been through in the 19 years. Not even the first EMP. I turned to Francis. You're the expert in astrophysics. What are the odds? Francis grinned. Okay, well, first, I'm not sure we're talking about the same things. These CMEs happen all the time on every star we visited. They all have the same thing in common, including a leading wave of high-energy charged particles. C.C. turned to me and asked, Who is this guy, Mr. Science? That's Dr. Science to you, and yes, I said with a grin. Go on, Francis. Francis snickered at the look on C.C.'s face, but continued. So, a surface event on a star splashes some of the corona out into space. It's not like a ripple in a pond, but more like a sneeze. Star snot. Francis, we're trying to eat here, Bev said with a grin. Not all of us have the same strong stomachs you environmental crew do. Oh, sorry, Francis said. Anyway, this stuff goes sailing out into space, and it goes a long, long way. Depending on the nature of the original event, it might be tightly focused, or it may be really loosely dispersed, but it can happen as often as 10, 20 times a day, every day. During a stellar maximum, maybe only once a day during minima. It's not really predictable. So, the EMP, I prompted. Oh, yeah, he got back on focus. These events are layered. The front layers are highly energized particles, really similar to a classical EMP. They can toast electronics and disrupt electrical systems. 
They seldom interact at planetary levels because the atmosphere intercepts them. They can threaten orbitals, but they happen so often that the orbitals are designed to deal with them. So's the ship, for that matter. I think everybody had glazed over by then. So Francis said, okay, think flash boom. Diane said, what? Flash boom, he repeated. You ever see lightning on a planet? Yeah, she said, of course. Well, he said, the flash of the lightning is like the high energy particles from our stellar sneeze. The boom is like the actual mass of what's being ejected. It trails it. I jumped in with, but we went through the mass. I heard it hit the hull. Then the EMP took out the generators. Well, maybe yes, maybe no, Francis said. Remember that normally the energized particles are moving out a lot faster and ahead of the CME residues. Whatever we ran into was not the standard particle front. Okay, I said, then what was it? Well, once in a while, a CME front gets a charged particle front behind it, either from a second event in the same area of the star or from a kind of secondary splash. We don't really know why, but the effect is that the outer shell of particles forms a kind of magnetic cup that contains those highly charged particles. Diane said, can you translate that? Regular highly charged particle front is like a lawn sprinkler. The other thing is like a water balloon. That doesn't sound like EMP, I said. It's not. EMP is just a kind of pop physics shorthand to tell people what happened to their satellites without having to go into the actual messiness of the physics. And you said these are rare. Yep, that's why we know so little about them. We can see them on stellar coronagraphs as they happen, but getting in front of them is a matter of luck. Bad luck in our case, Brill said. How rare? One in a thousand? I asked. We're not really sure. Could be like one in a hundred. Maybe not one in ten thousand. We'd need to put a shell of detectors around a star to find out, and so far there's not enough cred in the galaxy to fund that kind of effort. Wait, I said, what did I hear hit the hull? It sounded like a veil of sand. Probably was, Francis said. Little bits of grit swept ahead of the wave. Not the particles that came from the CME itself. Those are like hydrogen molecules and such, but space is filled with real dust. My brain did a kind of two-step as I looked around the table. Francis was alive and as animated as I'd ever seen him. For the months I've known him, it was as if he were wearing some kind of disguise, and this was his real face. Everyone around the table, except C.C., was, if not mesmerized, at least paying close attention. I got one of those weird flashes and thought, Francis is in the wrong place. My fork clicked onto the empty plate, and I looked down, wondering what had happened to my lunch. I looked around to see if anybody else had taken it when I saw Mr. Von Nichols was bussing his dishes. He looked in my direction, and I gave him a nod. Well, shippies, I said, duty calls, and I must needs answer. As I was walking away from the table, I heard C.C. ask, Does he always talk like that? I think it was Diane who answered, No, sometimes he gets really weird. Chapter 17, Betris Orbital, 2352, June 18. We get to the bridge just ahead of the captain and the rest of the officers. She took her seat and waited. It made me think of what backstage at the ballet must be like. The cast was gathering. I could almost hear the orchestra tuning up in the pit. Mr. Von Nichols pulled up the overlay and flashed a snap at the data map. On the right panel on my console, he put a status chart showing communications packets in various modes, voice, email, synchronous text, video, control, and command, and about eight others I didn't recognize. On the left was a scrolling log identified as system main status messages. It went by almost too fast to read unless you were completely focused on it. The middle screen refreshed every few seconds, but it wasn't live. Mr. Von Nichols said, I leave it on refresh so we can see if something changes slowly. The pattern changes show up more in a detailed display because your eyes adjust to the flows as they change, like you can't see the hands move on an analog chrono. This way they flash into a new configuration and you can spot it. I had to take his word for it. I'd never seen an analog chrono except in digitals. 
As I watched the display, first one and then a second smaller blob appeared on the schematic. We had a golden line running from us to each of them. That's the tugs, Mr. Von Nickel said softly. We're getting close. Make the announcement, Mr. Pa, the captain said. Set navigation detail. Setting navigation detail, I sir, Fong said from a station at the back of the bridge, and I heard the announcement from this side of the speakers for the first time. The director had just stepped to the podium and tapped her baton. A kind of hush settled as the last few members of the team took their positions. While other members of the crew might be reporting to duty stations around the ship, the bridge crew was already in place. The only obvious activity was a trading of places as a few people stepped forward and others stepped back. I could hear Selina Matteo talking into her headset, but I couldn't understand the words. The captain was standing at the back of the bridge, looking out at the stern of the ship. I couldn't see from my angle, but I suspected the tugs were out there somewhere. Prepare for pull-out, Mr. Pa, she said. It wasn't loud, but you could hear it all over the bridge. Prepare for pull-out, I, sir, he said, in just the same tone. He was talking into his headset now, and looking at a ship's status screen hanging down from the overhead. Secure forward locks. Make ready for pull-out. Disable docking clamp interlocks, he said into his headset. A status display went red and then green at the bow as the locks were secured. I could see the command and control channel traffic on my own display as it was happening. I saw a message flash back from the forward locks as Fong said, Locks are secured. Docking clamp interlocks are off-line, Captain. Ship's board is green once, he said. Thank you, Mr. Pa, the captain said, and looked at Selina Mateo, who nodded once at some unseen question. Astrogation ready, the captain asked. Astrogation online and running, Captain. Ship's board is green twice, Miss Avril reported. Systems ready? Systems are online and running, Captain. Ship's board is green thrice, Mr. Von Nichol said. Mr. Maxwell, are we ready? All ship's boards are green. We are ready for departure, Captain, he said formally. Log departure, 2352, June 18, 1332. Somebody said departure logged. I make the announcement, Mr. Pa. Stand by for pullout in 10. Mark. I'd heard the announcement from the galley and from the environmental section, but this time was like the first time. As he counted down, his eyes fixed on a digital readout of the time, people all around me were executing whatever their assigned tasks were in an amazing choreographed display. When Fong got down to one, I saw the docking clamps release in a flash of yellow and red on the screen in front of me, and he said, Mark! The communications channels to the tug turned white as they engaged their fields to tug us gently away from the orbital. I felt the normal moving lift feeling in my ear this time, but it was magnified by the surface of the orbital apparently moving back away from us. It took my eyes a moment to reorient to the fact that we were moving and the orbital wasn't. So much was happening, I didn't know where to look next. We pulled slowly back from the orbital at first, and as we gained momentum faster, the tugs towed us backwards for half a stand and then cast us loose, the representations on my screen disappearing as first one and then the other cut out of our network data stream. We're drifting backwards on a momentum as the tugs peeled off and went to wherever tugs go, perhaps to help the next ship dock in the now-empty berth at the orbital. Slowly, majestically even, the ship turned bow away from the orbital, and began the maneuvering to break orbit and begin the long climb out of the Betris gravity well. The whole process of coming about, firing up the kickers to move us out of the immediate vicinity of the orbital, and eventually extending the gravity keel and solar sail fields took three solid stands, but it flashed by in a heartbeat. I didn't have time to think of all of the people waiting it out in the galley or in environmental or anywhere else. Here we were sailing the ship. I could sense from the pace on the bridge when we were about to shift to normal operations and secure a navigation detail. It was as obvious and as inevitable as the arc of a tossed ball. All the pieces came together, more and more of them locking down, until there was only one, and then that too merged, and the captain said finally, Make the announcement, Mr. Pa. Secure from navigation detail. Set normal operations. 
First section has the watch. Secure from navigation detail. Set normal operations. First section has the watch. Aye, Captain. Log is underway at 2353, June 18, 1635, Mr. Maxwell. So logged, Captain. Good work, people, she said, and stood and left the bridge. I looked over to where Mr. Von Nichols was watching me. He had a little smile on his face, and he asked, So, was it good for you, too? It was all I could do not to burst into laughter. Yes, sir, that was something. They say you always remember your first time, he commented dryly. I can see why, sir, I said with a little chuckle. Phew. Well, you've got time to shower and get in a run before dinner, or off until mid-watch. Come up here and I'll work with you on the console and show you some things. We've got the afternoon tomorrow and you can work on the uh-oh box then. Sounds good, sir, I told him. The next few days flew by in a blur of finding my feet in the new environment and putting together the portable. The new portable went together easily right up to the point where we had to power it up. Mr. Von Nichols found where I'd reversed a jumper clip on the main board and we were up and running. We used the basic shipnet code that I'd modified before. We set that up on the portable's drive so that it fired up as soon as the machine was booted. We were as close as we could come to being ready without actually taking shipnet down to test it. I think we'll wait for that until we're docked, okay? Mr. Von Nichols said with a laugh. I have another idea, sir, I told him. I don't know how practical it is. What's that, Ishmael? he asked. Build a spare main cage. Keep it powered down in a grounded locker. If we need it, we can just pull out the old cage, load the new one up without playing poker with the cards. A spare cage? he asked. Yes, sir, the cage is on sliders. If we had a spare one built, we'd just lift the burnt one out, plug a new one in, and that's the majority of the repair we did. We'd still have to track down the odd burned board here and there, but it wouldn't take much time compared to what it took us to rebuild that cage where it sat. He looked at me, blinking mechanically as he processed what I was saying. So elegantly simple, he said. We take the initial load up with the uh uh-oh box, swap the cage, replace the burnt boards, reboot, voila. Yes, sir. He thought about it for about a tick before saying, We have a spare cage, but only one. Let's hold that idea for when we get to Nile. I think I can convince the captain to buy a second one. Sounds like a plan, sir. In the meantime, we rigged up a grounded locker in Systems Main to store the uh uh-oh box in and went on to solving the EMP problem. The first step is understanding what happened, Mr. Von Nichols said. I want you to pull the systems logs and give me a breakdown of everything that happened starting five ticks before the event. He sat beside me at the console and showed me how to extract the log data for the time period in question. It was a lot of data. Fifteen days out of Betris, I finally had a list of major events and took them to Mr. Von Nichols. This makes no sense, he said. True, sir, but those are the facts as nearly as I can ascertain from the systems logs. According to this, all that stuff burnt out after we were well through the CME, some of it as much as a full tick later. Yes, sir. We took the list to Mr. Kelly. Are you sure? he asked. All I have to go on is what's in the logs. These devices were recording data up to that point, sir, I told him. They may have been recording longer, but when the main hub went offline, a lot of the data collection packets were lost. But, Mr. Huang, this says that the hub was online half a tick after the main generators were blown down. At the velocity we were carrying, that whole event should have been over in less than half a second. Yes, sir. And I recovered the logs from local data storage aft. Some of those controllers didn't toast out until a full tick after the event. He held the list and looked at it for a long time. Can you give me a timed plot showing the locations by time for when these all died? Sure thing, Fred, Mr. Von Nichols said. You think it's significant? Maybe, he said. What I'm seeing in this list is that we failed from stern to bow and back to stern. He pointed to a few items. This unit's in the stern. It's one of the first ones fried. Going through the CME residue, I'd have expected to lose one of those up in the bow first, like this environmental sensor package in the port bow. This timestamp says we lost it almost 15 seconds later. 
the main data hub blew out after that, and then we were really starting to lose things in a cascade all the way back to the engine room. Does that mean what I think it does, Fred? Mr. Von Nichols asked. If you think that the damage wasn't caused by the EMP, yes. Thank you, Mr. Huang. If you'd put together the graphic display of this, Mr. Von Nichols said, I think Mr. Kelly and I need to talk to the captain. It took a couple of more watches, but I finally got a display that I like. Played back at one-tenth speed, where every second of real time was ten seconds of display, the pattern became obvious. Just as Mr. Kelly had picked out of the raw data, the failure started in the stern, and worked forward, and then aft again. Something about the patterns bothered me, but I couldn't put my finger on it. I turned it over to Mr. Von Nichols and Mr. Kelly and let them worry about it, while I set about learning my way around the ship's systems. Twenty-six days out of Betris, we jumped into Nile. Any idea that transition would look any different on the bridge than it felt in the galley was quickly eradicated. Unlike getting underway, transition was more like somebody changing the channel on the hollow. One instant we were looking into one corner of the deep dark, and the next instant all the stars moved, and where it was dark before, a brilliant dot of light marked the system primary. Welcome to Nile. Thanks for listening to Full Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is from The Fox Hunters, an Irish slip jig originally recorded in 1984 by James Curran and available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the golden age, visit www.durandus.org golden. <laughs>